You're listening to the Peace Corner. For more stories on peace and conflict, click subscribe. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and more. There are 1.8 billion people between the ages of 10 and 24. Imagine what a tremendous force for good they could be if we invested as much time, energy and money in their education and development as we do in fighting wars. Today, with more than 1 billion people aged from 15 to 24, we are witnessing the largest youth population the world has ever known. Unfortunately, a large proportion of them live in fragile and conflict-affected areas where high levels of violence threaten their existence and futures. While there are many young peace builders trying to make a change, they are still often regarded as either perpetrators or victims of violence. Despite all this, the field of peace building is still dominated by older men in suits. How can we challenge that status quo and create space for youth at the peace table? To find out, we sat down with Gizem Kilic, the leading coordinator of the United Networks of Young Peace Builders. So hi all, welcome to the Peace Corner podcast. Today we will be talking about youth activism in peace building. We are going to discuss these issues today uh, with Gizem, who is the leading coordinator of UNOI, which is United Network of Young Peace Builders the international network that has a secretariat here in The Hague. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Teodora. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. My name is Gizem Klinch and I'm very happy to be part of this podcast. So first, I would like to talk a bit about yourself. Uh, can you tell us where you're from and how did you come to the peace building? Of course. Um, so yes, I've already said my name. Um, I, I was born and raised in Rotterdam, which is a little city in the Netherlands, a port town. And I own two bikes. I have one bike in Rotterdam. And then I take the train here to The Hague, where uh, I work at the, the office of the United Network of Young Peace Builders. So I have another bike over here. Um, so that's very, very Dutch of me. Um, but I also have um, a link, um, despite being born in the lowlands of the Netherlands, I also have a link with a mountainous region in the eastern part of Turkey, um, where my parents and my sister were born, and who, uh, as a family, sought refuge from an armed conflict in the region, uh, which has fascinated me growing up, their family history, uh, why did they have to flee, flee this region, and um, it also formed my decision to, to study um, conflict and how it can be resolved in a peaceful way. So that's a bit uh, the link to my studies and um, eventually I rolled into an internship like you, Theodora. I also uh, was interning with GPAC um, a couple of years ago and I kept coming back for a new assignment because it was just such an exciting network to be part of and to serve as well. Uh, and that's, yeah, I guess the, the first steps I have taken into this this path of uh, peace building and conflict prevention. Yeah, thank you. I think it's really interesting. But what inspired you to work specifically for youth activism inside the peace building field? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I was looking for ways to continue uh, focusing on peace and security issues. I had noticed um, also in my previous experiences uh, working for a network of civil society organizations focusing on peace building, I had found myself sometimes in these high-level events, and I'm using quotation marks here, um, where um, I was surrounded by officials and um, representatives of certain governmental bodies or intergovernmental bodies or very well-recognized, established civil society organizations. 
Um, and I often I felt that my presence there was questioned, my role, my contributions. And I would sometimes get unsolicited career advice or people would say things like, oh, it must be so exciting for you to take up all of these discussions and take them in um, when I was, for instance, supporting the organization of the event. And um, I felt that, yeah, it, it, the, the, sometimes the conversations or that I had to kind of defend the right to be there, that I could also make meaningful contributions on content. This was not always the case. Um, but I think also maybe being a young woman with my voice not carrying terribly far and being 160 meters, maybe that also kind of reinforces the way that I'm sometimes perceived in these spaces. Um, so that's, I guess, has informed my youth identity uh, a bit and made me realize that young people are viewed very differently when it comes to peace and security issues. They're often seen as the perpetrator and this is often gendered as well, um, seeing young men as the perpetrators in conflict and young women as the victims, the helpless victims that need to be protected. So this, this stereotypes, they became more and more clear to me, uh, especially having joined uh, UNI, the network, which is not only a network of youth activists, but it's a network of experts. Um, a lot of the work does happen through movements or through... Um, um, mobilizing other young people, but it's also very serious. Uh, a lot of young people have set up organizations um, or um, are trying to influence policies within their countries. So I think it also goes beyond activism. Yeah, so you, you were mentioning uh, your, your organization, so can you tell us about how it was established and what is it trying to achieve? Of course. Um, so uh, a fun fact, um, me and the United Network of Young Peacebuilders, in short, you know why. Uh, we were both born in the same year, in 1989, um, and we're turning both 30 this year. We're only 20 days apart, our birthdays. Um, and it was, um, interestingly enough, founded by a Russian UN diplomat. He had a dream, also on his birthday. There's a lot of birthdays in this story. Um, he was turning 50 and he, was, he had a dream where he thought of uh, the UN or he saw the UN General Assembly Hall filled with young people discussing contemporary issues and woke up uh, and tried to find other like-minded people who wanted to bring this vision to life. So initially, you know why it was created as the United Nations of Youth in 1989. It kind of grew into this loose, loose network of young people um, concerned with different issues from environment to um, peace building being one of them, um, intercultural dialogue, qu quite a wide range of issues that they wanted to work together um, to resolve or to address somehow. And then this network transformed into more of a formal network, a network of youth organizations with this very um, targeted focus on peace building and conflict prevention. Um, there was a conference in um, the early 2000s um, in the, the Peace uh, Palace, which we, I can view here from, from this room. Um, and, that, and the success and the, the, the level of discussions in that conference also led people to think, uh, to, to decide that it was time to really have this targeted focus, focus on peace building because it was such a... Yeah, there was no other network or platform where young people could meet to focus on peace and security issues and uh, develop joint approaches um, uh, for shared for shared challenges. Um, and then what happened, um, we changed our name to the United Network of Young Peacebuilders in 2003. 
And then we had our first paid staff in 2006. Up until then, it was really driven by volunteers and interns. And that's, yeah, that's, uh, and now we're, we're um, going into a new phase that I can tell you perhaps a, a little later a bit more about. Okay, so you mentioned that it's 30th anniversary this year. Yep. Uh, can you maybe tell what are you personally very proud of what the organization already has achieved till this yeah. point? Yeah, I think there's quite a few things to choose from. Um, there's, of course, personal, uh, maybe the more kind of sc- smaller scale connections or changes that I see that our network brings about. Um, but globally, one thing that I'm very, 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 very proud um, of um, that we have achieved as a, as a global coalition of, of young peace builders around the world is um, that we were able, well, that we, we looked at policy discussions, we looked at how the media has portrayed us, and we felt that this was not very much in line with all the examples of uh, young people who are organizing themselves um, in their communities, at the national level, whether they are focusing on gender-based violence or um, forms of or economic empowerment or um, um, community-based dialogue. Um, we saw so many examples of how young people have a lot of energy, a lot of motivation, a lot of commitment to bring about changes. Um, but this was not echoed at the policy level. So we just we were very much inspired by the women peacebuilding movement, which had managed to put into place a policy framework supporting their efforts within civil society. And uh, we... Um, since 2008, eight, nine, we um, have gone. We have gone off to the the UN headquarters in New York, and spoke to decision makers, whether they're part of member states um, within the permanent representations to the UN or different agencies and departments within the UN. Tried to to bring about this conversation about how we would like uh, young people to be viewed when it comes to peace building and what type of support would we need to scale up the already existing efforts. Uh, initially, some policymakers, decision makers that we spoke with were a bit skeptical. Um, we had had responses from one member state that will, I, uh, who I will who will remain anonymous, who said your grandchildren will not even see this resolution because we were aiming for a UN Security Council resolution. So a thematic resolution on youth peace and security. Um, and yeah, some, some people were thinking, well, maybe that's too ambitious. Uh, maybe you should aim for the UN General Assembly, which is not the highest political authority on peace and security. But we remained very persistent. We also, over time, developed great friendships and um, partnerships with people within the UN system, within bigger international NGOs that could help us, that could help us also be more strategic. Um, And um, yeah, in 2015, by surprise, uh, because it didn't even take that long, um, the Jordanian Jordanian government, which was part of the UN Security Council at the time, um, put forward a de- declaration called the Amman Youth Declaration, which was informed by tens of thousands of youth voices, uh, because there was a global summit on youth peace and security in Jordan a few months um, before December 2015. Brought the declaration to the UN Security Council and said, um, we're, we are uh, sponsoring a, a resolution, which was an, eventually anonymously adopted by the UN Security Council. So that's, I think, one big achievement. Why is it so important? It was um, 
it didn't come from within the UN. It's really a civil society driven process. Uh, even the, the parts of the, the, the resolution, they have been uh, informed directly by young people because it's heavily inspired by the, the Amman Declaration, which has been co-authored by young people themselves. So I think that's, that we were able to bring about this change in this very complex system that is sometimes a bit frustrating to work with. I think that's really one key achievement. And the thing is, it's not just has, has not remained a paper in the ivory tower of the UN. We see, um, we're seeing a lot of changes following from it. And it is supporting, to an extent, the work of grassroots youth peace activists on the ground, which is the ultimate aim, of course. Yeah. Yeah, so as you're talking now about uh, UN Security Council Resolution 2250, maybe you can tell to people who haven't read the document maybe more uh, about it. Yeah, of course. Um, so it's, I mean, if you look at it, it doesn't look very exciting. It's a UN template, a black, uh, some, some text in this very <laughs> restricted uh, format. Um, but if you really dissect the wording and if you really look at the, the principles and the spirit of the document, um, it is very exciting, it is very groundbreaking. Um, as I mentioned, it came about from young people themselves and there's five core pillars. It's a very comprehensive um, agenda. Um, so there is uh, the principle of um, participation both political participation of young people that UN member states, uh, intergovernmental bodies uh, and, all the, uh, and all other relevant uh, stakeholders must um, support youth participation and decision making at all levels, especially when it comes to peace and security issues and also when it comes to peace processes or so really national dialogues and um, political dialogues. Um, then there is the, the, the principle of um, protection which looks at, um, well, issues of gender-based violence, um, that young people, like any other civilian in times of armed conflict, must be protected, that their civic space must also be protected um, so they can organize themselves um, and, and express, um, uh, have the freedom of assembly and expression and voice their opinions. The third pillar looks at... Um, um, it looks at par partnerships, which is how the resolution came about. It is through partnerships with um, governmental bodies, with NGOs, with security sector actors, that we no single actor can bring about peace. We know this. GPAC also carries forward this message. And uh, we also need similar types of partnerships to operationalize the youth peace and security agenda. Um, there is um, prevention, which is also really the core um, principle uh, or the core element of the youth peace and security agenda. A lot of uh, through research that you know I conducted in 2016, we found that found out that a lot of um, youth-led peacebuilding activities it's of preventative action. It's not only looking at intervening when once the conflict has escalated into a full-blown war, but it's also about working in schools, working with families. Um, thinking about narratives, certain public narratives, um, um, issues around economic empowerment or having um, peace education integrated into national curricula. So these types of interventions that are also very important and should be uh, supported as part of a prevention uh, agenda. Um, and then lastly, there is uh, the pillar around disengagement and reintegration. 
we can't deny that a majority of young people in armed groups, in military, uh, are young people. And once they're ready or have been disengaged uh, from these groups, um, we also need to look very specifically at their needs and integrate that into existing um, DDR, the disarmament, reintegration um, um, efforts. And um, yeah, and to really make sure that also their receiving communities are ready to, to, to that we can start um, bridging the trust gap that has come about uh, as a result of the, the existing tensions between young people and their communities and their authorities. So that's um, that we also really need to look at specifically the, the needs of young people and these types of ongoing processes also around security sector reform. And then the 2250 also called for, um, it called for a progress study, which is a bit of a misleading term because there hasn't really been any existing body of evidence around the contributions and the roles of young people when it comes to peace building. So the UN Secretary General had been mandated to carry out kind of a baseline study to understand where are young people in the world uh, actively contributing to peace building and conflict prevention, what does their work look like, what are their challenges, how could we further harness, protect and um, um, scale, uh, scale that type of work up. And that progress study has been completed last year. And I'm happy to tell you more about the findings if that's of interest. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. If you want to share it with us, of course. Um, yeah, so there's... Um, so it was um, a very participatory research um, process informed by nearly 4,000 young people around the world. There was a lead author, uh, Graham Simpson, who has consolidated all of the the data that's come about, that we have uh, collected through regional consultations, online consultations, focus group discussions, also trying to speak to young people that perhaps are, um, yeah, that are, I don't want to use the word hard to reach, but that are less frequently consulted in these types of uh, research. So young people in prisons or young people who are still active in rebel groups, um, so all this type of research happened. There were also a lot of civil society partners and UN partners as have also uh, contributed thematic papers or um, looked at very specific parts, dimensions of the youth peace and security um, field as it's emerging. And uh, yeah, and that has led to the independent progress study, which is titled The Missing Peace. Um, and you can access it online in different languages, in the official UN languages. There's also an interactive website and I would really uh, recommend everyone to take a look at it um, because it's providing a roadmap for how 2250 can be implemented and um, looking at also some of the policy myths that have misguided policy uh, programming on youth peace and security. Okay, thank you. And it was adopted four years ago, the resolution. Yeah. What can you say already about the changes that came afterwards? Do you see any positive the changes uh, are people now more engaged in this topic yeah yeah i guess this emerging knowledge base uh, or the kind of the first steps is one key thing that we've managed to work towards so as i mentioned when uh, after 2250 was adopted uh, with my organization with my colleagues uh, from around the world we would go to donors and say no now we want you to invest in the agenda or now we want you to 
come up with strategies on how you're going to implement 2250 and then the answer would be where's the evidence where are the numbers where are the statistics um, so it was a, cru a crucial first next step to take after 2250 to gather this evidence i mean it can also become a bit of an excuse um, donors always want to see numbers and statistics um, so at some point it also needs to be time to take the next step um, but uh, in that sense the, the progress study has provided us really interesting insights. Um, another thing, development that I'm seeing is that tools, guidelines are being developed both within UNOI but also beyond that help can help youth groups, but also other civil society organizations or civil society actors um, to zoom into some of the, the, the principles of 2250 and think, how can this inform my work or how can this, what does this mean for my local community? Um, and what type of action can we take on as a basis? Uh, um, and we see a lot of youth groups. I'm, I'm quite active on social media. It's a, a good tool to monitor. I've, I've seen a lot of youth groups that are not necessarily part of UNOI that have taken ownership of 2250, developing videos in their own local languages, uh, events where they bring together different actors within their communities and are fully running with this. And that's really exciting to see that it's now spilling uh, or trickling down into all these different layers and different um, um, types of actors. Um, another uh, exciting uh, development is also that a lot of regional intergovernmental bodies are realizing uh, that they need to... Um, that they need to develop strategies, regional strategies, um, for the implementation of 2250. It's also maybe one way of reaching the member state level. Um, there's a few governments, a few member states here and there, mostly in the global north, unfortunately, um, that are now developing or thinking of developing national action plans. Finland is the first one. Um, it's exciting how they're approaching it, because they're not only looking at it as uh, a foreign agenda, a foreign peace and security agenda, but also what does this mean for Finland and for Finnish youth? So it will also have this domestic angle to it. Um, but still, it's been a bit challenging to broaden the ownership of 2250 beyond the Security Council to all of the member states of the UN. Um, and so the, the regional intergovernmental bodies, like the African Union, which is now conducting a research um, developing a framework on youth peace and security, a regional one, or a pan-African one rather, and the European Union, which has adopted uh, policy guidance on, on youth peace and security, council conclusions in the form of council conclusions. It's really important um, movements to see because, as I mentioned, for now we, it's a, a global agenda, UN agenda, but it's not, no, it's not just a UN agenda. It's, um, it needs to be, essentially needs to change the lives of young people um, uh, around the world and I think uh, the next step these engagements at the regional level are a very strategic one and a uh, yeah very um, it's just very positive to see this and they are partnering up with uh, young peace builders as part at the heart of all of these uh, engagements so as you <laughs> said it is indeed really exciting and positive to see all these changes that young people are uh, more willing to participate but what are the main challenges for them that they're still facing um, I think their willingness was always there it's not necessarily that young people are more willing maybe they're realizing that they have a role to play 
um, often when you know I um, speaks to youth organizations when we're saying like join our network be part of it sometimes the response we get is like well, we're not sure if we're actually doing peace building work peace building work peace and security isn't that the domain of uh, our government the ministry of foreign affairs or um, as you said old men in suits um, and that we sometimes just have to through conversations and finding out what the the nature of the work actually is and the impact that we have this um collective realization that yes we are uh, a credible actor um, in this peace building field so I, I don't necessarily think it's always willingness of young people but it's more maybe realizing and feeling empowered uh, to to have the, the agency uh, to be an agent uh, in the peace building field um, but barriers that we still face despite some of these very positive developments that I've shared um, is the existing um, or persistent um, intergenerational trust gap. We see this between um, national governments, uh, local authorities and young people, um, and even international civil society organizations, um, but also the other way around, that young people still mistrust um, um, systems of patronage or corruption within their own uh, national context and that they don't necessarily want to be part of decision-making processes because they don't see those processes as legitimate and they would rather create alternative spaces for participation uh, whether it's through their own civil society organizations or through perhaps more organic types of movements um, so there's um, there's this distrust gap that's still very much um, there even though the perceptions are slowly changing of youth um, in global arenas, I'm not sure if it's still, if the narrative is changing, um, the open debate in the UN Security Council in 2018, when we the progress study was officially presented um, to the UN Security Council, there were 69 member states that said, oh, we welcome it, it's great, young people are agents of peace, but then they still, their remarks still talked about violent extremism or youth migrating uh, or young people um, not being employed and that being a huge risk factor. So they're still, they might kind of on the surface are echoing some of the messages of 2250 and the Progress City, but we're not quite sure if they mean it, uh, if they're there yet. But it's, I guess this is how you bring around shifts in any paradigm and it starts with the words, then they start meaning it and understanding it truly. Um, but that's still quite a barrier, I would say, which links me to um, some of the policies and the, the programs that both donors, intergovernmental um, institutions, and even civil society organizations have been developing as a response to this youth peace and security agenda. As I mentioned, a lot of it is still focusing on, on uh, youth in violent extremism, even though we know that the majority of young people are not violent and that it's a tiny, tiny, tiny majority uh, minority that's part of violent extremist groups or adopts this type of thought. But yet most of the funding, most of the policies are still geared to, um, towards these um, very restricted um, focuses on youth peace and security around violent extremism. So that's another very um, challenging issue. Um, Related is also when we speak or when we're trying to create partnerships and work together with other actors that there still seems to be this perception that education and employment is kind of the way forward that by simply creating jobs or 
um, providing more education opportunities to young people that that's the way forward. Um, um, but the progress study shows that it's not that simple and it's not, um, especially not only if you focus on, on um, if you don't think of it in an integrated way, that actually the biggest challenge that young people face is their political exclusion or different forms of exclusion. Um, and it's not only getting the matter of getting a job, but it's also about having a meaningful job that provides you social security. Um, and um, um, yeah, that it's uh, much more, I guess, much more broader than um, simply creating jobs or building schools. Um, then a third challenge that I really, um, that it's a one that we, that our members also frequently report to us as um, severely restricting their work is uh, the sense of civic space being narrowed, um, that um, governments, uh, we just saw this recently in Zimbabwe with the tensions there, internet shutdown or our members in certain countries not being able to receive uh, funding uh, from foreign sources um, or uh, their restriction, uh, their movement being restricted because um, their work is seen as opposing the status quo or the government um, the, uh, the positioning of the government and could be perceived as terrorist. Um, so we see a lot of these developments uh, that restrict the space in which our member organizations can operate. Also, it targets individuals and their personal securities is uh, severely threatened. Um, there's quite a few young peacefulers within our network who have repeatedly been arrested um, by their governments or local authorities without there being a clear kind of... Uh, um, uh, a process or um, how do you call it um, like a, a claim towards this person or a fair or, or their passports being taken away from them so they can't either um, they can't um, move elsewhere to um, temporarily um, find support or so yeah there's a there's a lot of the and it's not just it's not only in I don't know the, issue, the countries that we might think of when we think about restricted civic space, it's also issues that we see in, um, well, in Europe, where we are here right now. Um, there's member organizations that can receive funding within the different uh, Council of Europe member states. And um, yeah, it's just really, really um, disheartening to see. And um, we're, as a global network, we're able to perhaps, especially when an individual is targeted to work together with actors that we know at the international system or, I don't know, write letters to embassies or ask our UN partners to come in and support, provide support and make a, create a lot of noise. But it's a really difficult development and, yeah, and so want to address. And for young people who are interested in peace building, what advice do you have for them? Maybe something you <laughs> like to share? Um... I might not want to give advice per se, uh, because I think there are these young people that um, are either interested in peace building or are already active in one way or another. They probably have a lot of ideas and a lot of expertise themselves. What I would want to tell them is that they're, um, if they want to be part of a, a network of like-minded people, if they want to tap into uh, resources, um, that our member organizations 
um, are sharing, openly sharing opportunities uh, that we're co-creating or want to be part of, also want to be um, part of this, um, yeah, this joint civil society voice towards different policy makers and want to shape policies around peace and security that they should definitely write to us, contact us um, and uh, get in touch with us and also connect with member organizations in the countries where you might be present because we are a network of organizations. Um, so perhaps if you want yeah, to, to be part of a group and uh, to, to, um, to work with other like-minded people, definitely have a look at our website, get in touch with our regional coordinators and they'll be able to link you up. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think that would be my main message to any young people that might be listening to this podcast and want to be part of this, this global network, this global movement of young peace builders. Uh, thank you. And in the end, uh, in this series of Peace Corner podcast, we have some questions that we would like to ask all our guests and maybe to compare it. And uh, so the first question would be, uh, what is something you hope to see achieved in the world of peace building globally or locally within the next year? <laughs> um, I guess going back to maybe explaining a bit why I had I, I felt motivated and was very happy to join a, a network of, of, of young people working on peace building. Is, um, it, I, I personally would find it great if in a one year time, young people wouldn't have to be faced with the question of why is youth participation important in peace building? What is the impact? And that they wouldn't have to defend their right to participate. Um, again, it's a right. Um, and that their agency wouldn't be questioned, I think that would be a great, great, uh, a great thing to see in the world if, if we could reach that point where um, yeah, it's common sense that young people should be part of any effort, uh, effort or intervention regarding conflict prevention and peace building. That would make me very happy if we would reach that. Okay, and if you could debunk one myth or common misconception about peace building, what would that be? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think that it's not something fluffy, something only related to, um, I don't know, inner peace and yoga and Ben and Jerry's, uh, like all these symbols that we might associate with peace building that take away some of the political dimensions of peace building, as I mentioned. Um, one of the, the greatest obstacles for young people to meaningfully co contribute to peace and security issues is their political exclusion. Um, and I think um, a lot of the work that we do revolves around certain power dynamics and, um, and um, um, between different actors. And these are things that we need to address. Uh, and structural issues, the ones I've mentioned, um, uh, structural forms of exclusion. So I, I think this is maybe one myth that I would want to take away, that it's not something fluffy. It's not, it's sometimes very dangerous work, as I said, young people risking their lives around the world to work, to even use the word peace, um, uh, to speak of um, peace building, um, because it often implies a winner and a loser, and that's already very threatening in itself to many different actors. Um, so yeah, I would want to kind of defluff peace building. I would want it to see, uh, having said that though, I would want us to see it as being part of the everyday. Also in a society as the Netherlands, it's a very relevant topic that we are working on 
that we should perhaps be um, um, addressing more explicitly as well. Um, just to give an example, we've had for many, many years a very polarized, or many years, actually only a couple of years, a very polarized debate around uh, the black peat, which is um, a part of a, a tradition here in, in, in the Netherlands uh, around the time of Christmas time. Um, and it's a form of blackface and it's um, very, um, um, it's, it's really causing a big rift between people. And I think issues like this, um, or manifestations put, uh, of polarization in Dutch society, shows that peace building is not, it's a global agenda, it's, it's relevant for people all around the world. And um, yeah, that's maybe myth two that I would want to um, un unravel or un 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 um, what's the word? Debunk. Debunk, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Thea. <laughs> You're welcome. And thank you very much for the interesting conversation. You're welcome. Nice Thank you for having me here. And uh, yeah, I'm looking at the microphone here, but uh, as I mentioned, really do get in touch with us uh, through our website. Um, and I'll, I'm sure GPEC can also provide you with uh, our contact information. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Peace Corner. If you're interested in hearing more from us, please click subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be listening. And tune in next time when our communications intern Ben will be talking to Carrie Kennedy about shared security and global conflict trends.